Hello, and welcome to episode 28 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. I am Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me as always is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. Good to have you have you with me, Carl, and good to be back doing the podcast. It's been months. I think our last episode was our Roland Garros preview, and we hope you're really, really well prepared for the French Open, and that has taken you through the summer. Hopefully now that all of our various travels are wrap, wrapping up, if not wrapped up entirely, we will be a bit more consistent, especially through the U.S. Open. We've already penciled in a couple dates to do our next few episodes, so we're looking forward to that. Um, enough housekeeping, though. Let's dig right into the tournaments in Canada, in Toronto and Montreal this past week. Some really exciting tennis, some big names making themselves heard, even more than usual. Um, first big hardcore tournaments of the summer with most of the top players there, even though we're not seeing Roger Federer for another couple of days. But a couple of the biggest names that caught my eye the most were not the most famous players. One, I think that the star of this week in Canada has been the the young Greek, not quite any longer teenager, Stefanos Tsitsipas, who reached the final in Toronto, knocking out four top 10 players, um, playing a reasonably competitive match with Rafael Nadal in the final. He broke into the top 20. Uh, he's up to seventh in my ELO ratings. And all of this on the week of his 20th birthday. Really incredible showing. Carl, with Sitsipas, he's been a prospect for a couple of years, but did you see any of this coming? I could have seen him make the final of a Masters in a kind of broken draw with a lot of upsets early, but for him to beat four top 10 players in a row, did not see that coming. Now, granted, one of them is Dominique Team, who's nowhere near top 10 on hard courts, but Djokovic, Zverev, Anderson, all very credible opponents so no I, I didn't see it for him for a while he has had a really good season he kept getting wins at tournaments kept rising in the rankings he was playing qualies earlier in the year now he's as you said into the top 20 uh, without much to defend for the rest of the year so it's a pretty impressive ascent especially given that we've become accustomed to guys taking longer than uh, reaching age 20 to get this high in the ranking. Yeah, that's a good point because aside from Alexander Zverev, people just don't do this. I remember after the U.S. Open last year when Denis Shapovalov broke through, uh, I, I wrote a quick piece for Tennis Abstract about how few players had risen to his same ELO rating as quickly as, as he did, just in terms of matches on tour. And... Shapovalov, I think, might have cracked the top 20 in ELO ratings. Maybe not quite. I forget the exact numbers. But Tsitsipas has absolutely blown through that. He's done so much more than Shapovalov did at the same point, I think at a comparable age. And I'm always a bit suspicious when players climb up the ELO ratings this fast. I mean, because he hasn't been playing on tour that long, his, his ELO rating isn't quite as confident in his current level as it might otherwise be. I mean... It, Every, every match he plays, every upset he scores has a bigger effect on his rating than it would if he had, you know, another 100 matches under his belt. So when you see something like this, Sitsipas at number 7 in the ELO ratings, 
Do you buy that? Do you think that he's legitimately the seventh best player on tour right now? I think it's a little inflated, partially because he some of his big wins have been quite close and quite lucky. I mean, his last two wins in Toronto against Verevin Anderson, in each of those matches, he won fewer, a lower percentage of return points than his opponent did. And he could very easily have exited in the quarterfinals against Vera if he was down a set and had to win the second set in a tiebreaker 13-11. So those those little shifts can give you that one extra match and maybe even luckier against Anderson in the semi where he saved all four break points he faced, had to win the third set tiebreaker 9-7. So we're not really taking that into account yet in ELO. Uh, it's probably a little high for that reason, but he that'll even out and... It'll be interesting to see now what he can do with some buys at slams and maybe eventually buys at at other high-level tournaments if he keeps rising in the rankings. Just because I know some of our listeners are extremely pedantic, um, I'm guessing you don't mean buys at slams. Oh, excuse me. (laughs) Uh, Seeds at slams, for sure. And he actually got a seed at, at Wimbledon. And Masters, generally, the top eight seeds are given buys, and he's not too far from that range. He's actually 11th in the race this year, which means he even has a chance to do what Zverev did last year and bypass the next-gen finals and just go straight into London, where the older guys play. Yeah, that that would be really fun. I, I didn't even consider that. I usually don't start thinking about the World Tour Finals until about the, the Saturday before, like the Paris semifinals. But I guess that's because I unsubscribed from their mailing list, so I don't get reminded about the, uh, the World Tour Finals every week of the year until then. But you mentioned, you mentioned buys and seeds, and Sitsipas, I, I don't think he's made any announcements about Cincinnati yet. I mean, we're recording this on Monday morning, so it, it is still pretty fresh. Nadal has announced he's skipping Cincinnati just to give himself more of a rest. There's no no real injury concern. He just wants it a little bit of extra time. But Nadal obviously would have had a seed going into Cincinnati as number one. Sitsipas, whether he's seventh in ELO or not, um, even with the new ranking of number 15, he doesn't get a buy in Cincinnati. The draw's already out. I think he he drew David Goffin in the first round, so not an easy task. And that match will probably happen tomorrow. Uh, if, if you were Sitsipas, Carl, would you make the trip to Cincinnati and give it a go? Well, I don't know how he feels, but 20-year-old, full of confidence, knowing he'll have a week off before the U.S. Open after Cincinnati... Yeah, why not? If he loses early, then he gets to have an extra few days of preparation and doesn't lose that much. And maybe he'll continue his his hot streak from Canada. Um, But I wouldn't be surprised if he's getting different advice, especially now that the draw is out and that he would face Goffin. And if I were a lucky loser or if I were a contender for lucky loser status in Cincinnati, I'd certainly stick around and see what happens. Well, if I were a contender for lucky loser status, I want Nadal's spot in the draw. That's the place to be. 
yes, he would not face Goffin in the first round. He would not face anyone in the first round. But um, Exactly. Those are the ultimate lucky losers. The when luckiest. You get yourself a bye into the second round. Um, that brings up a broader question, and I, you might guess my answer to this one just because I'm posing it at all. But it, the WTA, in at least in the fall, with the Wuhan-Beijing um, tournament sequence, they have something called performance buys, where if I think if you make the semis in Wuhan, uh, even if you, your seed doesn't earn you a buy in the following week's tournament, then you get a buy. It's, it's basically just a way to incentivize people to play both tournaments and give a little bit of a rest to those women who, who make it far the previous week. I apologize if I'm, if I'm getting some of the details wrong. Uh, well, th- the concept is, is correct, that make it to the semis of one tournament and get a bye to the next tournament, uh, even, if the, even if your ranking doesn't justify it. Do you think that's, a, that's something that the ATP should consider for cases like this with the turnaround between Toronto and Cincinnati? Yeah, I think it's an intriguing idea, especially because, as you say, you risk otherwise losing the exciting big breakout performance from the week before, either because they don't show up at all or because they're just too exhausted at the start of the tournament. I would like to see players show up anyway, uh, sort of in the mode of what I said about Tsitsipas, that... If you do, if you are, it turns out not ready to play the next tournament. You'll find out soon in the first match. You'll you'll lose. It's it's not a giant risk, and they go back to back at slams when they go deep. Granted, they get a day off between matches, and this the Friday, Saturday, Sunday, back to back to back of the quarter semis and final is pretty tough on players. But they are playing best of three, so. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to see the ATP consider it. I'd also like to see more players take a shot and do it. In practice, I think we're really talking on the ATP side about, at least in terms of tournaments at the Masters level, we're talking about Madrid and Rome and Canada and Cincy, right? Are there other cases like this where it would be back-to-back top-level tournaments that are one-week length? I think these are the only, this is the only Masters sequence. Um, Madrid and Rome could be different because isn't the plan to turn those into two-week 96 draws starting next year? Oh, so it's a moot point for them. I didn't realize it was going to change that, that soon. Well, I, I actually, I only know this because because we have this this Google Doc with podcast topics from we, that we don't update very often. So if you scroll down to about the third page of our 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 document here, which which are things that we didn't get to back in March or something, or maybe even last year. I don't know. It's been a long time. Uh, we have a note that the ten day Roman Madrid tournament start in twenty nineteen. I don't know whether that was ever finalized. Uh, I haven't looked at any provisional 2019 calendars, so I apologize if I'm misleading anyone, but but I know that's in the cards. Uh, but to answer your question more directly, that, that would leave Canada and Cincinnati as the only pair of masters. But on the women's side, the, the Wuhan tournament, I believe, is premier, and then Beijing is premier mandatory. So... So it's a unique situation where performing well in a slightly lower level event gives you advantages in a higher level one. Uh, and the ATP, I think, has recently changed their rules so you can get a special entry um, into a into a higher level event from a lower level one. Um, 
maybe from 250s to a 500. And this same thing could apply from, say, the the week of Basel and Vienna, the week before Paris. Maybe getting a, getting a semifinal or a final in Basel would get you a performance by in Paris or something like that. And when you consider those, there's there's a couple more instances where it would apply. But still, you're only looking at a few pairs of tournaments. Yeah, DC and Canada would be would be a pair that would would sort of correspond to uh, the Asia swing you mentioned for the women. And actually, that's that's a, a good point to bring that up because it, even more important than rest is simply getting people into tournaments. And I. I could be wrong about this, but I don't think Alex de Menor even um, even played in Toronto. Uh, he had that really exciting run in Washington, uh, really thrilling semifinal against Andre Rublev, and then lost in the final to Zverev. But then that only that pushed his ranking into the top fifty. So I don't think he had a place in the Toronto draw, and that really seems like a shame. I mean, I guess he probably would have been tired, and he would have had to play in the round of sixty four, but. Well, I think the tournament would have been better to have him there. Absolutely, yeah. I that's a good point. I didn't think to miss him, but it does seem like he uh, took the week off. It yeah, probably involuntarily. Yeah, probably involuntarily. Um, yeah. So, one more thing about Sitsipas and Carl. I'm a little surprised you haven't figured out how to bring this up yet. Is he not only has a one-handed backhand, he has a very nice one. And I mentioned Shapovalov earlier, who also has a one-handed backhand. So we have two of the the brightest prospects in the game, really, with one-handed backhands. And this is the time that the one-handed backhand was supposedly dying. Uh, what do you think it would it, it means now to have... I mean, we've been talking about Dominic Team as a young player for, I don't know, a decade now. So he's not really young anymore. But we now have two legit young prospects with one-handed backhands again. Do you think that bodes well for the future of a the one-handed backhand? Oh, of course. I mean, some of these guys would have been still finalizing some of the ingredients of their game while Federer was number one, because Federer was number one now for the first time almost 15 years ago. Um, and these guys are 20, or in Shapovalov's case, younger. So if these two have great 15-year careers and are playing in slam finals with their one-handed backhand, you'd think that has to have an effect. My cautionary note is that I think a weak point for both of them and one of the weaker parts of a game in Federer's that doesn't have too many weak parts is the service return. And it is, you've shown that it's it's harder with the one-handed backhand. It's harder to hit a really effective service return. It's a weakness of Stan Wawrinka's otherwise really impressive one-handed backhand as well. Grigor Dimitrov, it certainly held him back. So I I hope for great things for Tsitsipas and Shapovalov because I hope for great things for the one-handed backhand and, and I really enjoy it. But that's something they're going to have to overcome or, or adjust for or just, you know, be good enough at everything else in the game that it doesn't hurt them too much. But, you know, it, against Nadal in the final, Tsitsipas was pretty woeful on return and that made the outcome a lot shorter than the score 6276 would suggest. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's, it's definitely true as to Pavlov. Uh, 
I, I forget whether I ended up writing anything about this, but Shapovalov's return numbers are really woeful, like almost curious level bad. And I, I guess I assumed that Tsitsipas was a considerably stronger returner, partly because he did have some success on clay this spring, uh, making the Barcelona final and losing to Nadal there as well. But I don't have any numbers to back that up. And as you point out, his performance yesterday was was not a great sign in that direction. So so yeah, that that is a concern. And that I think that is part of the reason why the, the two-handed backhand has taken over to the extent it has, that the return of serve is so important and... The best, the best returners have so much potential to dominate the game in the way that we've seen Djokovic and, and Murray and, and Nadal do it over the last decade or so. Um, so yeah, that's a, a good thing to keep in mind and always something to watch when, when a young player is coming to the top. Because as you point out, it, it just took a few points here and there for Tsitsipas to be, to be the topic of this conversation at all. If he had... If he had fallen to Zverev in the quarterfinals, we might have mentioned him as having a having a good tournament and someone to watch, but we wouldn't be talking about him for the first 20 minutes of our, our whole episode. So a couple points in the Zverev match, a couple points in the Anderson match, and things look totally different. And that that's the sort of thing just to always watch out for when you're evaluating a player. I mean, the, the year that Milos Ronic really broke through, I, I think I wrote something then highlighting just how, how weak his his return game was and how rare his year-end ranking was relative to that return performance. So when you see that conjunction of a high ranking or a breakthrough season with poor returning, there could be a lot of luck as a factor. And hopefully with someone who's just now 20 years old, there's room to improve on that. But we'll see. Something to watch with Sitsifas. Let me give you a quick stats update from TennisAbstract.com. The top 50's average return point win percentage is 37.5, and Shapovalov is down at 35.1, Tsitsipas is 36.1, so below average but a little better, and Dimitrov is 36.4. And where's Zverev? Oh, Zverev is near the top. Zverev is 39.4, and it looks like he's about 10th. 10th out of the top 50. Okay, I would have expected a bigger gap between Shapovalov and Tsitsipas, but I guess at 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 that level, a one percentage point is pretty big. Um, I think I think thirty five is is kind of the the do or die level. That I mean, if you're below thirty five, then forget about it. You've got to win a lot of tie breaks to be competitive. But yeah, and one guy he, who doesn't have a one handed backhand, but really is going to be held back by his continued ineptitude in returning is Nick Kyrgios, 32.8%, second worst of the top 50. Yeah, and and the key thing there is that it's not improving. That's something that uh, I wrote about several years ago, that you can't you can't be a number one player if you're as bad on return as Kyrgios is. Uh, the question only is, is he going to take advantage of the time he has to improve? And so far, not really. Um, one test will be this coming week because he's defending a final showing in Cincinnati. But we'll get to that in a little while. Um, so, Carl, we, I think that's all we need to say about Sitsipas. Um, we'll come back to some men's topics, and I want to come back to Cincinnati later. But the woman that I want to talk about the most is Sloane Stevens. So on the women's side, 
Simona Halep won the title. Um, she played a couple really tough matches to get there, including the final against Sloane Stevens. But Sloane is now number two in the world, or almost number two in the world, within, a, I think, about 100 points of Wozniacki. Uh, remember that at this point last year, she was just coming back from injury. So at this point last year, she had played, I think, just one match in D.C. Uh, and she lost to Simona there. So she's basically newly back from injury. She made the semis, I believe, in in Canada last year. So she has this, this, this really bizarre ranking profile where she's a legit number three, great, I mean, won the U.S. Open, final at the French Open, great showing in Miami as well, and then tons of first-round losses. So super weird mix of, of impressive performances and really disappointing ones. And... Now, after being out for, with injury for so long, she's going to have to start defending some of these points. And she had a tough, tough task in Canada. Uh, she had some points to defend in Cincinnati and then the huge title defense in, in New York in a couple of weeks. But here she is. She made the final, came within, again, just a few points of, of beating Simona Halep, uh, played a really, really exciting high-level match against her yesterday. In, Carl, I'm having a tough time deciding what to make of Sloane Stevens. I mean, she obviously she has it in her to be the best in the game. She also has it in her to lose a lot of really bad matches. Um, do you think we're going to see her stick around in the top five, or are all these early losses going to start catching up with her? I think it's going to be a close call because everything in the women's ranking is a really close call. I mean, if you look at the difference between being in the top five or falling to number six to 10 or falling out of the top 10, it's, it's small margins of points in a lot of cases. And with Stevens, she does have so much to defend. So really we're talking about losing the majority of her 2000 points from the U S open, unless she makes the final again. And realistically, I think that's, less likely to happen than it is to not happen. But I think we can continue to expect her to have occasional deep runs and titles at big tournaments. She's shown she can beat pretty much anyone. And in her last two matches against Halep at the French Open final and then at the Montreal final yesterday, she you know, played her really even after Halep had owned her in, in the last few matches. So... I'm I'm very encouraged, but there are many really talented, great players in the WTA who can alternate between having great weeks and maybe even great pairs of weeks and then having a series of first-round losses or um, first-match losses. So I, I don't think we should be too surprised if Stevens ends up being another player in that mold. She was somewhat unusual in having the really long cold spell after winning the U.S. Open last year, and I was a little concerned, like maybe this would become this would this would last for a year or longer that, that she would kind of have this hangover of such extreme success. But she really snapped out of it at Miami, and she's had a couple of great results since then, along with more of the first round losses, like at Wimbledon. 
So here's here's what might be a tougher question. I, mean, I want to come back to this business about the, the flux in the WTA rankings, which we've talked about a lot on the podcast, because we need to touch on Garbini and Muguruza as well, who's defending the, the title in Cincinnati. But sticking with Sloan for a minute, um, it, it's a bit puzzling sometimes to watch her play, especially against someone like Simona Halep, because it, they'll, they'll play these really impressive points. I mean, I, I just... I just finished watching and charting that one a few hours before we recorded this, so it's pretty fresh in my mind. And there were several points where the rally would go to 20, 25 shots, and the, the, the crowd was completely involved, just like ooing and aahing with, with some of the shot making along the way. But it, it's tough to see what makes her so good. And I, I don't mean that in a skeptical way. I mean, obviously, she is very good. Uh, the results speak for that, and the fact that she can she can beat Simona Halep at something close to her own game, it really speaks to that. But I have a hard time pinpointing what what it is that Sloane Stevens does that that allows her to beat every player. I mean, I, I hear commentators talk a lot about her speed. Um, usually, with speed comes anticipation, but I don't hear them talk about anticipation quite so much with Sloane as they do with Simona Halep. Um, Carl, what do you think Sloane Stevens does that sets her apart? I think she's tactically pretty strong. She usually makes good decisions. And I think her serve and forehand are are quite, can be weapons. Um, and that she doesn't have any, any obvious weakness. So you're right that no really strong weapon jumps out as obvious. And I think there's something about her form when hitting that can undersell just how um, how hard she's working. Like there's something sort of casual looking about it, but that's just, that that's deceptive. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think she also does a good job of mixing up her shots, especially her forehand, uh, about sometime during the first set of the broadcast from the final yesterday, uh, the, the broadcast showed uh, average, I think it was average ground stroke speeds. I've, it might have been forehand speeds, but I think it was average ground stroke speeds. And uh, it, it at that point, it had Halep at, a, I think, a couple of miles an hour on average faster than Stevens, which surprised me a little bit. And Simona has put a little more speed on her shots in the last year or so, but you still don't think of her as a, a heavy hitter. Uh, but I, th- it does seem like Sloane has another gear she can shift into occasionally. I mean, she's happy to just sit back and, and rally all day and chase things down. But every once in a while, she'll be standing in the middle of the court and it seems like she's just ready to be done. And she'll, she'll slam an off forehand down the into the line and just, you don't even know where it came from. And most of the women who have that kind of playing style, like a, like a Halep or a Svitolina maybe, they, they can hit winners and they will hit it past you, but they don't, they don't look like they can just ratchet it up like that and, and switch, from, switch from being Wozniacki to Sharapova or something. And Stevens does seem to have that potential. It, it does make you wonder a little bit if she should be using that more if she has that capability. Uh, but but I guess her results in the last year would suggest that what she's doing is is working pretty well, even if it's not working all the time. Yeah, yeah, that's why I, I come back to finding her pretty tactically impressive and 
thinking of some of the big matches she won at the U.S. Open last year, and that she seemed to have a plan and be calm in her plan in a way that her opponent didn't. So I, I want to wade into a little bit of a minefield, and it's partly a minefield of my own making, maybe just in my own mind. But would, would you think that based on some of these things we're saying that she's tactically sound and has a good game plan, would you conclude that she's well coached? Uh, interesting question, because we're, we're talking about her when she's in her mode of making semis and finals, not when she's losing 6-1, 6-3 at the first round at Wimbledon. Um, but there's also the question of how much a player's current game is the product of their current coach. Like She's certainly over the course of her life been well coached. Uh, all the top players probably have been to some degree. Does that mean she's currently being well coached? I mean, she's having a great year, so she probably has a good coaching situation that works for her. I don't know if that means that she's getting top tactical coaching. Well, the reason I bring it up is it, I can tell from your answer that, that you have not sat through as many broadcasts of her matches as I have, um, especially... Uh, especially U.S. originating broadcasts, because Sloane Stevens' coach is Kamal Murray, who I, I don't know how long they've worked together, but it's been a while. Um, and to judge from most of the commentators I've listened to, Kamal Murray is a genius. I mean, just an absolutely brilliant coach who is largely responsible for a lot of Stevens' success. And I have, I have no idea how to judge that. I mean, I think we've had this conversation on the podcast before that there there's no way to control for this stuff. I mean, you can look at a Vim Facet, for instance, and, and be pretty sure that he's a good coach because he's moved around with so many players, had good results with so many different players. You can look at a player like Simona Halep and say, oh, she must be pretty good independent of her coach as she's had a, a fair amount of success with a number of different coaches. But... Sloane Stevens, we don't have a lot of coach-player relationships to go on. Kamau Murray, I don't think we have a lot of coach-player relationships to go on. So we have to somehow look at what Sloane Stevens has accomplished and decide how to divvy that up between Sloane Stevens and Kamau Murray. And I have no doubt that, that Murray is a solid coach and has useful stuff to say to Sloane Stevens. And... I guess I just get skeptical when I when I hear commentators fawn over him so much. And I'm also a bit skeptical because it tends those sorts of comments tend to take away from the player. Like that the more you talk up the coach in a in a one-on-one relationship like that, the less credit you're giving the player for what's ultimately up to her. So I I don't I don't think there's an answer to this this dilemma unless we just enforce player coach changes every year and and create a sort of controlled experiment out of it which isn't going to happen double blind uh, too. yeah does that mean that that the players and coaches can't know who they're working with yep you got to be scientific about it yeah okay yeah well then that'll work um yeah i think I think that commentators have gotten better over the last decade or so uh, at talking less about things that they don't know or can't know. But this is one glaring exception, uh, with, and not just with Sloan and Kamal Murray, with, with plenty of player-coach relationships, um, up to and including Rafael Nadal and his coaching team. 
but but I think it's particularly it's particularly noticeable with with the women because I think that that commentators have a tendency to to talk about coaches more when uh, with with women especially younger players so I'm not sure it's it's, it's it, like I said it, I can sense we're wading into a minefield here and there's no clear answers so um, maybe we should wrap it up there but but it, 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 it's it's always something to to keep an eye on I guess when when you have these situations where you have no no way to control for the player or the coach when evaluating one or the other yeah, and you, you have to just account for commentators needing during the time between points to have a picture to talk about that's not always the player toweling off, and they tend to have shots of coaches and boxes, and it's like, okay, let's talk for 10 seconds about how great Murray is. Okay, we've 10 minutes later, okay, we got another shot of him. What else are we going to say? So it... it it uh, it it can be a virtue to not have heard too much of that talk. Definitely, I I would definitely agree with that. So one more thing I want to talk talk about before we move on from the Toronto results is you know in talking about Sitsipas and Sloane Stevens, we've focused more on the runners up and less on the winners. The winners, as we've said, being Rafael Nadal and Simona Halep, um, both with impressive weeks. And I'm not sure we would have considered either one of them the respective U.S. Open favorite. You know, I, I, I could be wrong. I haven't looked at the betting numbers, but I would have guessed that we'd be talking about Federer as a U.S. Open favorite over Nadal. Uh, and I'm not sure that people would have been thinking of, of Simona Halep as the U.S. Open favorite on the women's side. But do you think that this week changes anything, Carl? I mean, Nadal didn't beat Federer, so, so there's no opportunity to see that comparison and and Halep didn't face a lot of the players who could take her down in New York either but do you think that do you think we should be treating those two as the U.S. Open favorites at this point I think it's reasonable Uh, you know Halep on the one hand might be remembered as having lost in the first round of the U.S. Open last year on the other hand, she had a really tough draw in Sharapova, and she had just come off a semi in Toronto and a final in Cincy. So she was looking pretty good going into the U.S. Open. Her, her losses in that semi and final were really one-sided, but still good good runs. And if she had gotten through the Sharapova match, who knows? I mean, that draw kind of opened up in addition to her loss. So... I think she's credible. And then Rafa, I mean, Rafa's the defending champ. So maybe Federer is the favorite. You could say Djokovic, just given how good he is on hard courts and that he just won Wimbledon, is going to be one of the favorites. But I think after having a really long run of not winning off of clay, not winning titles off of clay, Nadal really put himself back in that pack of perennial favorites at, at big hardcore events by winning the U.S. Open last year and then also winning Beijing and making the Shanghai final. So I, I think even before that win, he should have been, if not the favorite, one of the two or three favorites. So maybe now he's the top favorite. Yeah, I, yeah I'll buy that. I mean, one big factor, you know, usually you're the one who points this out on our episodes, but this time it's, I'm going to jump the gun on you is I think the draw is going to be an unusually big factor 
uh, at the U.S. Open. We're already seeing that in Cincinnati because uh, we before Nadal pulled out, we could have had a Djokovic-Nadal quarterfinal in Cincinnati. Uh, Djokovic is, is he even back in the top eight? I'm not sure if he's even back in the top eight. So he could be someone's round of 16 opponent, um, a top player's round of 16 opponent. Obviously, he could be someone's round of 16 opponent. Uh, Andy Murray is going to be a floater. Stan Wawrinka is going to be a floater. Um, lots of tough players who who don't line up with the bracket as neatly as they have in the past. And even for Federer or Nadal, those could be tough matches early. So it, it does seem pretty wide open, but when it is wide open like that, if you have a player who's the defending champion, has just won a Masters on the same surface, then hey, you, you got to give the, the nod to Nadal. So Djokovic is in the live rankings 40 points behind Dominique Team, and this is a hardcourt event. So I think there's a pretty good chance Djokovic overtakes him and moves into the top eight and makes the U.S. Open draw slightly more ordered. Okay, that that would make sense. Um, yeah, it's still interesting with uh, the jury still out on Murray and I mean, Vavrinka isn't quite the same caliber as a potential spoiler but as i say that i'm not sure i even believe it uh, he he played reasonably well this week I and mean, he, he challenged nadal uh, so even with djokovic in the the top eighth and there's still some danger that could could strike at any time i mean that w- it would be pretty amazing to have someone like murray or Vavrinka land opposite a top seed in the first round uh, that that would be a bit of evidence that the draws aren't rigged, which would be nice to have now and then. Um, back to Cincinnati, since by the time you listen to this, that draw may already be underway. We have Federer back, but before we talk about Federer, uh, that that's my trick to, to keep you all listening. We're going to put off talking about Federer until the very end. But first I want to talk about Grigor Dimitrov. You mentioned Dimitrov earlier as a one-handed backhand with some return problems. But more to the point, he won Cincinnati last year. And it's easy to forget that given he hasn't done a ton since then. Uh, so he has a he lot won of the World to... Tour finals. But yes, otherwise, not a ton. Good point. So apparently I missed the World Tour finals both before and during last year. But yeah, it was that was a good show from, from Dimitrov last year as well. So since then, <laughs> he hasn't done much. And he... he He's the one who's getting unlucky this week with Djokovic in the round of 16. I have in our notes that he was going to face Nadal in the quarterfinals, but now he's going to potentially face a really lucky, lucky loser in the quarterfinals, so that's not so bad. But it seems like kind of a long shot that Cincinnati's going to shake out anything like it did last year because we had uh, Dimitrov and Kyrgios in the final, um, a lot of other weird stuff like Jared Donaldson in the quarterfinals. Um, Cincinnati is usually... a a pretty high profile or it plays out like a high profile event with the top players going far but last year was kind of a bizarro world in mason so what do you think carl i mean you could make the argument that dimitrov plays well on really fast courts cincinnati is a is usually quite hot so maybe that'll be a factor that it wasn't as much in canada i mean where would you put the odds that dimitrov is actually going to defend this title 10 Seven percent. Seven percent. What do you think the the chances are he would beat Djokovic if they both get to the round of sixteen? 
Thirty-six <laughs> percent. I like the precision. I I might go thirty-six point four, <laughs> but sure. Okay, that that would be an interesting match. Um, well, it seems fairly likely to get there. Um, I mean, they they did play at Queens, which was on grass, so maybe not the best precedent. But Djokovic won that one pretty easily, and Dimitrov has in the past been quite good on grass. In That's fact, true. Djokovic has won their last five matches. Oh, are you going to stick with that 36? Yeah, I don't put too much stock in head-to-head. But, um, hey, Dimitrov's the higher-ranked player. But, yeah, I, I would I would favor Djokovic pretty heavily. I, I I don't think Djokovic is totally back. I, don't, I think it's a somewhat artificial construct because it's always a shifting target what your level needs to be relative to the tour. But I think Djokovic is back to beating guys like Dimitrov pretty regularly. Yeah, I th- I think so too. I I am curious to see how how this whole tournament shapes up because, like I said, it was it it went very much against script last year, um, in favor of the big servers Dimitrov, uh, and then more to that point, Curios and Isner. Isner was a semifinalist last year, uh, so this this could be an opportunity for Kevin Anderson to keep building on on his good run of form, which really has barely taken a break all season. Um, but what about Federer? We haven't seen him since Wimbledon. He lost to Kevin Anderson there, speaking of the South African. Uh, what do you expect from Federer this week? Not a ton. Uh, I think he's probably glad Rafa dropped out. I think he could use a good result to get some matches in, but it's not essential. And I think he was pretty disappointing for the grass season. I mean, he, he won Stuttgart, but... It wasn't always easy. And then in Halle, he lost in the final of a tournament he dominated, and he was shaky against some pretty low-ranked opponents before the final. And then Wimbledon, he, yeah, he didn't lose a set until his loss in the quarterfinal, but he wasn't cruising. He had a pretty easy draw. The quarterfinal was a match he should have won. He had a match point. He was up two sets. So I don't think he looked good enough to be named the U.S. Open favorite. I know it's a different surface, but it's a good indication of your level. Yeah, and there's not a lot of time for him to correct anything you know, by, by just playing this one event. Um, and that's another thing I was wondering about during the, the Canada tournament, which you know, it, it turned out being a really exciting tournament with, with a good mix of top players playing well and upsets courtesy of Tsitsipas. But it, it is missing something to have a Masters event with no Federer. And that's part of the reason why the, the ATP rules are structured to get all the top players to show up for these Masters events unless they're, they have the experience and age of someone like Federer. But do you, think it's, do you think it's good for the sport to have someone who's, I guess he's technically not, not number one right now, but he's almost an honorary number one and the, the face of the sport who does play such a limited schedule as Federer does? I think Nadal would dispute the honorary number one in face of the sport. It's not like it's it's some upstart no one's heard of. But take your point. He's certainly the um, the all-time leader in slams, titles, and so on. And it's tough. Like, it's on balance if the question is, would you rather have the sport where it is now with Federer being so close to the top, but also missing a lot of tournaments and hardly ever playing the same tournament as Rafa, it seems. The 
if the alternative is that Federer retired when he, uh, when he, let's say after he lost at Wimbledon in 2016 and missed a lot of time, he could have decided to make that extended absence from the sport permanent. And I think most people in the sport would say that they're glad instead he came back and did what he's done. So I think this is probably the Federer we're going to get now. And if this is the only one we can get, yeah, it's probably better for tennis to have this than to not have him at all. Yeah, and, and, and since I know for a second there, uh, a lot of you Nadal fans were, were screaming at your iPhones trying to get at me. Uh, I, I think the same question could be posed during some of Nadal's absences as well. I think that in the same the same argument that you make, Carl, applies to both players. We went through uh, a couple years where Nadal was out with injury for a while. He's playing a pretty limited schedule, choosing to, to skip a lot of events. And yeah, exactly the same argument applies. We're better off having them when we do rather than not having them at all, which is the, the, the actual, those are all the actual alternatives. Um, part of me cares also about the integrity of my ELO rating. So it'd be really nice if everyone would play every week. But And play I'd each also, other, ideally. Ideally, yes, they would play each other. And we can't have that, I guess, which is a shame. But at least we're occasionally getting a big four match now that we've had a couple of uh, Nadal-Djokovic matches. Hopefully, hopefully more to come involving Federer soon. Um, along the same lines as Dimitrov defending his title, I want to talk about Garbini Muguruza, who not only won Cincinnati last year, but absolutely dominated Simona Halep in the final. One of Halep's worst losses ever, one in love. Uh, and it was Muguruza's last really good result i think uh you can you can check her tennis abstract page and and see if i'm wrong but she's been a bit disappointing so those cincinnati points loom quite large in her ranking at this point she's another one of those players in the mix that carl was talking about earlier that sloan is at risk of falling down into um and Muguruza does have a pretty rough path to defend her title. She could get uh, Yelena Ostapenko in the round of 16, and then she could play Halep again, a rematch of last year's final in the quarterfinals. So so that's a tough one. Carl, what do you think there? Do you, again, if the courts were playing fast, that probably favors Muguruza over, over Halep, although not so much over Ostapenko. Uh, would you expect her to... to come back and defend this tournament? You always give me the question in such an easy way. I, I never expect hardly any player to win any individual tournament. So, no, I don't expect it. i probably give her a better chance than Dimitrov. Although she doesn't have the luxury of not having the number one in her draw. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's disappointing. I mean, she really had some good results last year, and young enough that it would have been reasonable to hope that she would build on them and improve on them. And instead, she's mostly slumped. She did reach the semis at the French. But other than that, like you said, I mean, not a, not a lot to, to show for a lot of opportunity. A year with really high ranking and a lot of buys and a lot of good draws. And not, not an obvious injury to explain it either. Yeah, and, and she has had patches like this before. Um, I believe after her first slam title, she she had quite a dry spell for a while. So 
when when she bounced back and won another slam, we were talking like she was when she'd finally gotten that settled. She was going to be a, a threat for the duration, and now she's back in the doldrums again. So, I mean, it, it, you can't write her off completely, but her current ranking of I don't know, maybe number seven, she's is right now something like that. Um, it seems about right. I mean, she's she's a threat. And the fact that she's so aggressive makes her maybe a Sharapova level threat to beat anybody on any given day. But yeah, you you're not you're not in a position to favor her in any tournaments. Um, certainly nothing like that. So I have two more general topics I wanted to touch on this week. The second of them is the serve clock, since that is right up our alley, and I think we'll have a lot to say about that one. But before we get to the serve clock, um, I wanted to touch on an article I posted on the Tennis Abstract blog a couple days ago on the fact that the ATP Top 50 is actually getting younger. So just to summarize, for those of you who, for some inexplicable reason, haven't read that yet, uh, the average age of the Top 50 and the Top 100 on the men's side has been steadily increasing since the mid-80s. Almost every year it's gone up a little bit. It's never gone down for, I don't think it's ever gone down for two years in a row in that time. So back in the mid-80s, it was around 24 and a half. The last couple of years, the year-end rankings uh, averaged around 29. And right now, actually not, not not right now, since it's a new week of rankings, last week the top 50 average age was... 27 and three quarters, I think. I think we lost a, a little tiny bit more because um, we lost a 30 something out of the top 50 and gained a 26 or 27 year old. But that's beside the point. 27.7. We lost more than a year in average age, which hasn't happened. There have been some blips up and down uh, around the year 2000, but never more than about six tenths of a year on average. So this is a bigger a bigger drop in average age than we've seen in 35 years. So a big part of that is Tsitsipas. We've got Shapovalov, um, Alex Dimonor is in the top 50 now. And we have a lot of players who are on the road to retirement. David Ferrer, Julian Beneteau, Mikhail Eugeny, Gilles Muller, um, Ivo Karlovich, all out of the top 50 after being there for a long time. And it seems like a, a bigger move than we've seen in a long time. But we still have, obviously, some older players who are playing extremely well, namely Federer and the rest of the big fours over 30 as well. So, Carl, what do you think? Is is this a, a blip, or are we finally actually getting younger? I think we're finally actually getting younger. I think the blip was the generation in between these current young guys and the big four not really showing up, not being deep, not having all-time greats near its top and that's how we still have three members of the big four in the top 10 and having won major titles this year and then a lot of sort of nothing in between nothing is harsh but a a lot of relative emptiness of of talent and, and births in the top 50 and top 100 and then you get another generation we're familiar with, with the current crop under 22, under 23. Yeah, yeah. I hope you're right. Um, I think we'll, we'll tick back up a little bit if Murray and Vavrinka come back. I mean, they're both in their 30s. And it, it, it ultimately is a question of how long guys stick around. Because a big part of 
why the average age has crept up is is because the mix of players hasn't really changed. You know, a lot of the players who were in the top 50 at the end of the year in 2015 or 2016 had been there for many, many years. And you know, all of a sudden, David Ferrer wasn't 25 anymore. Now he's 34. Mikhail Eugenie, guys like that um, who maybe weren't at, at the very top getting all the attention, but they were sticking around way longer than the, the typical player was um, certainly 20 or 30 years ago. And maybe finally all those guys are retiring, but there will be another generation of, even if we're talking the Del Potros and Dimitrovs and Marin Cilic's, guys like that, maybe they'll stick around to 35 or 36 as well. That's the one thing that could turn this into a blip is if if in five years we're still looking at you know, Chilich and Del Potro and Kevin Anderson, which seems a little bit far-fetched, but not that far-fetched. It's it's plausible. Um, so, serve clock. I want to give us some time to talk about that. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we finally have serve clocks for the U.S. Open series. It's 25 seconds between points. The clock starts when the, the chair umpire enters the score for the previous point, and it's visible on both sides of the court. Um, a couple players said it was a bit weird to have it during the, the City Open in Washington, but the comments generally haven't been too negative. Doesn't seem like there's a lot of time violations. Uh, I haven't noticed a difference in the pace of play, but it is a pretty major change in, in how the rules are enforced. I mean, certainly people have been talking about the serve clock for a long time and it, they were demoing it at the, the qualifying and I think the wheelchair event at the U.S. Open last year. So something's finally happening on that score. Carl, you've seen some matches these last couple of weeks. What are your thoughts on the, the serve clock so far? I think it hasn't been a very big factor. It, it hasn't seemed to come into play for that many big points or really affected the players that much. I, I'm in, generally in favor of enforcing the rule of time between points, but so far it it hasn't really registered for me. Yeah, and that seems to be the big story. I mean, it's not, it doesn't make for a very good newspaper copy, but it it's a bit of a non-story that... I think people imagined all of the all of the worst possible outcomes of having a visible serve clock, and I, I'm among those people. I, I wrote something, I think it was a few years ago now, when people first started talking about a serve clock. I didn't think it was a good idea. I thought I thought fans would pay too much attention to it, and there might be like clapping or general noise that would start when it got when it started getting close to zero, like you get sometimes in basketball games. Uh, it, it seemed like it would draw attention away from the game at the very moment you could least afford to lose that attention. But that isn't what's happened at all. Um, the question now is whether it's actually doing what it's set out to do. And in, in reading some of the player comments, I think Shapovalov was concerned that uh, after long points, the umpire was taking a long time to start the clock, and he was playing Nishikori in that match. Nishikori is one of the slowest guys on tour, and it certainly can be uh, when when he's getting tired. So that's not that different than the complaints that umpires are treating the top players differently before there was a serve clock. And that, that's, that 
concern of unfairness is one of the things that led to the serve clock in the first place. And Djokovic was said in one of his press conferences that he feels like he might have more time now uh, for that same reason, because the umpires don't start the clock right away. So it's not 25 seconds, it's 30, 32, something like that. I saw a couple instances in the, the Halep final after long points when the clock did run out right before, uh, I think it was Simona was going into her serve and didn't call a time violation. And granted, seems fair. There would be a couple of minutes gra- or a couple of seconds grace. But at the same time, if you have a serve clock, you might as well enforce the serve clock. So I think there are some questions remaining to be answered. But Carl, in watching tennis the last week or two, have you noticed players acting any differently, preparing any differently, any effects of the serve clock at all? Not not enormous ones. I mean, I haven't seen every minute. And when I've read the articles about it, it they've mentioned incidents that I missed. But the incidents seem minor. I mean, even before the serve clock, umpires were calling players occasionally for time violations, just not nearly as often as they were actually committing them. So if there are occasional calls with the aid of a, of a clock that's visible to everyone, that's not an enormous change. Uh, I, I think one important point here is that the time on the clock is 25 seconds. And at the slams, the rule typically is 20 seconds. Uh, do you know if the U.S. Open is changing it to 25 seconds? Because that's what they've gotten used to from these warm-up events? Yeah, the U.S. Open will be 25. So that really neuters the effect of the clock because there are so many players who live in that 20 to 25 second zone and who are comfortable there and if you add on the cushioning that Djokovic mentioned of the umpire not starting it right away it's really giving a lot of players even more time than maybe they had before plus the comfort of knowing that they can take all that time one of the points Andy Murray made is in the past, you had no idea how much time you had unless you were counting in your head, which is a really poor use of time between points for a player. Now, because you know you have that time, you might take even more time. Um, hey, I'm about to serve, but there's 10 seconds left. Maybe that means I should rest a little longer or think a little harder about where to serve. So I'm, I can't can't say that I picked up on that specifically, but it's one reason why I think it hasn't had an obvious big impact. Yeah, and I have a, presumably have an article coming out in a few days that will go into more detail on this, but I ran some quick numbers on the on the Canada and Washington and San Jose tournaments, which are the ones so far that have had the surf clock, and I mean, you know, there's not a lot of data to work with. All I have is number of points and length of match, so we're just dividing the length of the match in minutes into the, the number of points. That's it. So that includes um, thing. It, it doesn't, it doesn't control for things like number of changeovers, although that's pretty consistent and length of rallies, number of aces, things like that. So it's not a perfect measure, but over a number of matches, it should even out pretty well. And at every single one of those tournaments this year with the serve clock, matches have been a little bit slower which I can't imagine is what the, the powers that be were hoping for from, from the introduction of the serve clock. What I haven't looked at yet, and we might not really have enough data to, to determine yet, is whether that 
means that the the average speed has uh, has started deviating less. So to your point, Carl, maybe some, or to Andy Murray's point as well, maybe some players are taking longer if they used to be really fast, uh, while the slowest players are are taking a little less time. But I did look at specifically at Nadal, and he wasn't much faster, if at all, than at other hardcore tournaments. So I'm not sure I see much of an effect. It does seem like the optics are pretty good because it at least looks like it's being fair to both players and it it makes for a clearer target if a player like Shapovalov is really concerned that his opponent is breaking the rules. Um, and maybe some of these kinks, like giving, giving the clock extra time um, after a long point, maybe that'll be worked out somehow. I don't know. But, but it seems like... Um, like a lot of hoopla about not much so far. Which probably means it's a mild success. I mean, not a success perhaps in slowing and speeding up matches, but that it, it doesn't have any of the big feared negative consequences means, hey, transparency is good. Uh, there's less... There's going to be less inconsistency in enforcement of the rule. Maybe it's a mild success. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure if I would. I, I'm, I'm ready to call it a success, especially since it's something that adds to the complexity and cost of putting on a tennis tournament. But maybe it's not enough to matter too much uh, to the sorts of people who are putting on tour level events. I don't know. It could um, also be a Trojan horse, and once everyone's accepted and is comfortable with it and is fine with it then 25 falls to 20 and we really see an effect. That's true. That would be interesting because I, I think that a, uh, you were right to ask that at the outset, Carl, that there's a big difference between between 25 and 20. And I, I was just looking at your the articles you wrote for the Wall Street Journal back in 2010 where you looked at how long players were taking between points. And Nadal was often going over 25 as well, but if you if if you upped the the U.S. Open time limit from twenty to twenty five back then, then uh, a lot more players would have been within the rules. So the, maybe players are just used to that twenty five second limit, and the majors are letting them get 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 away with it. So they were just kind of unofficially sticking with twenty five at the majors. So so that could be another change we'll see once the the serve clock is is accepted. So Carl. Anything else you want to touch on before we wrap up episode 28? No, just excited for Cincy and for hopefully doing some in-person Tennis Abstract podcast recording soon. Yes, we are going to be podcasting about the U.S. Open like any other tennis podcaster in the next few weeks. So if you are out for a really long run and looking for something else to listen to, check out Carl's other podcast, 30 Love. Moderately um, long run, 30 minutes or less. Yeah, but they've already been running for an hour. Oh, good point. Yes. Sorry about <laughs> that, runners. Keep keep going. So if, if you're in the middle of a very long run or about to leave for a moderately long run or you don't run at all, check out Carl's other podcast, 30 Love. I really, I don't know why I introduced all those other clauses. I should have just told you to listen to his podcast. But... Do that. Um, lots of new content on the Tennis Abstract blog as well, so so check that out as well. And we will be back with you with another episode about this time next week. Thanks for listening, and see you then.